0: Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, James.
0: Welcome, Carlos. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, We're going to be talking about sex crimes. Uh, We're also going to be covering crimes against children. We have with us today a 28-year veteran from the LAPD, subject matter expert in crimes against children and sex crimes from the Dordulian Law Group, the Dlawgroup.com, so we can find more information about them and about him. This is a serious topic, James. And I know we just uh, interviewed a few days ago an FBI agent who went undercover with NAMBLA. Yeah. and That was amazing stuff,
0: too, huh? Oh, I know. I know. Especially the I was just telling somebody about the story about, mm-hmm. the, you know, at the beach, you know, and, and like you said, or, you know, they're looking, you can't look at women. They're looking at little kids. And t- I mean, that was unbelievable. Shocking. Terrible. It really is.
1: And but I guess today we're going to hear some more shocking stories. Again, this is not for the lighthearted folks. But I think we should welcome our guest, Detective Moses Castillo.
2: Again, folks, 28 years in LAPD. Welcome, sir. Hey, thank you, Dr. Carlos and uh, James. Thanks for the opportunity. Welcome.
1: welcome. Before I get started, I want to say thank you also for your service,
0: Detective. We truly appreciate it. I agree. I, I agree with that.
2: So tell
1: us a little bit about, and you've been in LAPD for 20 years. Um, you worked in sex crimes. Tell us a little bit about
2: that unit. So my career uh, as a detective uh, began in May of 1999. And I I was quickly asked to uh, work the sex crimes unit out of the Newton area. And from there, um, I did a year of working sex crimes. So there was anything from a peeping Tom to a serial rapist and everything in between. And then from there, uh, the elite team of the robbery homicide division of LAPDs, uh, uh, cream of the crop detectives. Uh, sought me out and asked me to be part of their team. And from there, I did five years of uh, investigating adult victims that were victims of sexual assaults. There, I investigated anything from a serial rapist to a serial rapist slash murderer and all the very complex cases, high-profile cases. And then from there, I I sought out a position out of the abuse child section out of LAPD's juvenile division there, I investigated crimes against children, crimes of physical abuse, sexual abuse, and in some cases, murder of children. So as you can imagine, I've seen the worst of the worst. I've seen the worst of humanity. I've seen what the worst criminals can actually do to the most innocent. And I actually can tell you that I, I believe I personally met the devil, at least on two different occasions, because this guy was totally evil and just meeting him And getting him to confess, uh, I just felt that he really was the devil himself. And we could talk about that if you want.
1: Absolutely. I'd like to hear more about that. Now, I guess my first question would be I'm sure the audience might be thinking this way for right now, but I want to gear them that way for a second. How do you process this stuff as a detective for this many years? I mean, you're seeing these individuals and these crimes over and over again. How do you process that?
2: You know, uh, I've been very fortunate that I have a, a great support system. Number one, I don't drink alcohol, so that was a big help. Hmm. Uh, but I'll tell you once we get going. But there was a time in my career where I actually I felt a lot of pain and I felt horrible that I wanted to turn to the alcohol. So for the first time in my life, I realized uh, that now I understood why some people, you know, try to escape the pain by going to alcohol or, or drugs or, or whatever it may be. But uh, the way I processed it was number one, my my family, my faith. And I had an outlet. I had a couple outlets. So I, I also, uh, away from work, I, I coached youth soccer. I, I have three boys. I coached them all. And I also was a referee soccer. Uh, I, I, I refereed soccer games as well. And that was my outlet where I could, could see the kids in a positive light and, and teach some of the young kids some life lessons that we could learn from the game of the sport of soccer. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I dealt with it. But we also had uh, psychologists assigned to us. And I, I wasn't ashamed or afraid to reach out to them, especially after a very tough case. And I think that's the key is you recognize that this was tough. You recognize that it was you know, awful and that you need to process it. So um, that's how I did it. And then there was one other thing I did that was very consistent. On Sunday mornings when I would go to church, I would actually pray. I would pray for my victims, the ones from the past, the ones that I'm currently serving, And the ones that were coming in the future because unfortunately the victims keep coming because the evildoers commit these evil acts and uh, you know that was a very powerful thing because that allowed me to really uh see this as my calling not just my job not just my career but my calling and when i would tell some of the victims that i would actually i've already been praying for them you could tell me i have that connection with them that it's really hard to explain unless you're one of those detectives you'll know what i'm talking about there's a special connection with your victims, and um, and it goes without saying that many of them to this day still reach out to me and stay connected and tell me how they're doing, and they thank me and uh, I'll show you a story about that. But yeah, it's, it's that's how I did it, and, and I think that's what that's why I was able to do it for so long because I had something in place to to have something to decompress it and just to process it.
1: It's great advice for other officers. And James, it's interesting because I, when I listen to Detective Castillo and remember your stories as well, you're both subjected to traumatic events like this. Yours is a little bit more boom acute, right? It hits you right then and there, and then it kind of goes away in the sense of that—that's the end of that movement, and you kind of go to another scene. You have to deal with another thing. Uh, Detective Castillo is interesting because he actually develops relationships with these individuals, and if they've deceased. You still hang on to that case for days, weeks, months. Uh, so it's fascinating to see how both of these events can uh, not traumatize, but can affect a police officer and sometimes traumatize individuals. Fascinating. I agree.
0: I have a question for you. For those who don't know uh, LAPD, um, how would you guys get the case? Would it be something patrol uh, had to respond and they called you guys out? Or, you know, I, for people who don't know, how would that work?
2: So basically, it's a couple of ways. Number one, uh, generally it's a 911 call somewhere that the patrol officers respond to it. And once they get to the scene and figure out that they got something that's on their hands that uh, they need some guidance or direction, they know to reach out to the detectives. So if it's something really serious, uh, somebody was seriously injured or a serious attack, assault, uh, we actually will come out on the front end and, and handle the investigation from the very beginning along with patrol. But sometimes it's just patrol taking a crime report based on what their investigation revealed, then it goes down maybe the next day to the detectives, then we get the case and we run it from there. Uh, But sometimes, like I said, depending on the seriousness of the case, of the actual crime, and um, like if if there's leads that we could follow up with and it's very dangerous, we would work a case to we would exhaust all leads or until we would apprehend the individual, and people sometimes forget that just because we apprehended somebody doesn't mean the investigation is completed. No, it actually it's the very beginning of it because there's so much that goes involved with that.
0: Sure, absolutely. But I mean, you want to find out, especially who you the arrestee, who you're dealing with. You know, this person might have past offenses as well. So, absolutely.
1: absolutely. Yeah. I guess that leads us to that question: When you met the devil, what was that story all about, detective?
2: Well, You know what? Um, it was uh, the first time I, I say I met the devil. This guy, his name is Richard Zuno, and the reason I, I want to say his name because that's how it all kind of developed. This guy, uh, before he committed this brutal rape, where he we call it a hop prowl, where he snuck in through an un- unlocked window in a particular home and he actually removed all his clothing before he actually went in. So, wherever you knew. By that, we could establish that the intent was to commit a sexual assault. And when he went in there, he, he woke up this lady, and she tried to escape, and she actually made it toward the, toward the ar- to the side of her property, which was a long driveway, you know, cement slab. And this guy tackled her, got her on the ground, and he beat her head, slammed it against the cement until she came out unconscious and she was bleeding, and he just raped her right then and there, he actually drank her blood, uh, and he would eat uh, her, you know, vagina, and uh, uh, literally ad- very animalistic. That when that first responding officers got there, this was like in the middle of the night, so graveyard for this particular division, you know, didn't have a, a full set of officers. Maybe they had three patrol units, so it took a long time for the officers to get there. Uh, the first unit gets there, he requests help, you know, backup. And he's trying to kick the guy off the lady. He's trying to tase him to get off the lady, and nothing's working. He kicks him, batons on him, and nothing's working. And he's the way the officer described him. He was very bizarre and very uh just animalistic. And uh, other units get there, and they're all kicking him, and they're not. And finally, somebody said, "Hey, you know what? You guys step back. I'm gonna take a headshot." But then another officer at that time, there was some uh controversies going on with the LAPD, and another officer said, you know what? No, he's not armed. Don't shoot him. So it's just, they, to me, it would have been a good shooting because number one, we're trying to protect life and this lady needs medical attention right now. And and this guy, we can't get him off from. So in, in any event, I responded. I was working robbery Division at that time. I responded to the scene and I responded and it was the bloodiest crime scene to that point that I've ever seen. And then this guy was all bloody. The officers were all bloody. You know, so we We took pictures of the officers. We took pictures of the victim. And we finally went to go talk to him. And my partner already tells me, hey, when we go talk to this guy, we're not going to uncuff him. And if he just doesn't doesn't talk to us, we just walk away. I go, no, 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 we need to talk to him because our victim is going to die. We thought she was going to die. She survived. But she has no memory of what happened, thank God. But when I went to approach him, there was something evil about him. And sadistic behavior, you know, the eating and drinking of her flesh, I was very sadistic. And so when I went to talk to him, at first, we didn't know his name. Uh, and, and I got so upset with him, and I was with him at the hospital that I yelled to my partner over the phone. I said, you know, screw it. Book him Jane Doe. I meant to say John Doe, but I said, I said Jane Doe by mistake. Oh, he flipped. No, 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 no. He goes, my name's Richard Zuno. He didn't, he didn't want to be called Jane Doe. Uh, it's funny how the psyche work is. He yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the power trip about hating women and attacking women and, and degrading women. So no way did he want to be called Jane Doe. Uh, and so it worked. He gave me his name and I found out that fool was uh, arrested for doing very something similar up in San Francisco where he beat this old lady uh, and uh, it was unsolved. So just really bizarre guy and when talking to him. I knew mental the mental was going to be a, a part of his defense. So I did what we call a you know a, a Gladys R in our in our in our city in our, in our state. And that's just to 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 get this person to tell you that he knew right from wrong, right? At the time of the at the time of the offense. So I asked him, hey Richard, give me some examples of something that's right to do. He says, okay. He said, read the Bible. I said, Oh, that's good. Said, well, what else? <laughs> it was and he, women. <laughs> and, and and kill women, I go richer. I said something that's right to do. He goes, no, that's that's right to do, eat and kill women. So, I just felt this 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 evil spirit about him, and uh, he ended up getting uh, convicted, but by by reason of uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. So he's spending the rest of his life in a mental hospital at, by the Department of Corrections. Was he on anything? He wasn't, so So that was, I'm glad you asked it, because uh, uh, we ran him for toxicology, and uh, he had nothing in his system, nothing, and when I told that to one of the patrol officers who happened to be one of my friends, I said, hey, Tommy, guess what, I just got back his tox, he has nothing in his system, he goes, what? We thought for sure he had either PCP or, or right, something. Yeah. Yeah. How but old was he, had, was he in his 20s? He, at Early that point, 30s. he was like his uh, mid-20s.
1: Okay, so yeah, it sounds like schizophrenia, probably psychotic
2: yeah. episodes and schizophrenia. Yeah, he, had, he he he. You're absolutely right, doctor. He had uh, episodes of. Uh, he was an arsonist as well. He was an arsonist. He was a convicted wow. arsonist for multiple burn, multiple uh, arson incidents that he that he did. So yeah, that was really that was one, and then the other one. It um, happened in 2016. This guy murdered a three-year-old little girl. He stabbed her three times, killed her. Every stab was a fatal wound. In front of her parents. And what happened here? They were the family just brought their three-year-old daughter to their place of business. It was a it was a place where they sold a seamstress. You know, they were sewing clothing. And the suspect was also one of those employees. Uh, he was a coworker, but nobody knew him. He, you know, this is a large factory, nobody really knows each other. They just go there and do their work. And for un, unknown reason, unprovoked, he stabbed this girl, killed her. And this was on Halloween of October 31st, 2016. And when we finally caught him, you know, he, he took off. He's on the run. Uh, we caught him. Uh, we, you know, he actually, he felt the heat, I believe, and he surrendered to another local police station. But when I first got him cuffed, I felt something really bad about him. I felt the same spirit that I felt when I met Richard Zuno. And when I put him in the room uh, to interrogate him, I, I felt that strong spirit, again, that evil spirit. This time, I will say, this time, I'm smarter uh, detective, I'm not going to let you play games. I'm already thinking in my mind that I wasn't going to leave that room until he confessed to me, and, and that's what he did. He actually confessed. He, he mentioned things about the Ouija board, and uh, mm. so, yeah, this guy, you know, the fact that he was into the Ouija board and all this evil stuff, I had this uh, awful feeling of that's who he was, and, uh, yeah, his name is Ricardo Otui. If you guys Google Ricardo Otui, you'll see his image. You'll see his picture. He got convicted uh, just uh, before I retired, and uh Man. Yeah. So those are the very tough stories. And uh what made that story uh very special to me uh was Ruby was her name. She was three years old. But the moment I learned that Ruby was uh, born on the same day I was, it, it changed the oh. whole dynamics. So it uh, I might even get emotional because uh, wow. I'm not I'm not shy about allowing my emotions to to come out, but if I do, uh I don't apologize for that because that's just the way it is. No, absolutely but, not. And so in any event, um, yeah, and to this day, I I stay connected to that family. Um, You know, that happened on October 31st on Halloween, so the holidays are coming up, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas. I just couldn't do it, Doc. I couldn't celebrate it. I couldn't connect with my family.
1: I can can imagine that, especially during the holiday season, because somebody just lost your little one. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, it felt good that we got this son of a bitch uh, off the streets, and, and now we have to uh, prosecute him, and uh, so in any event, uh, I, I really held this the hand of this family, and very sweet family. They're from uh, uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, and very humble, very sweet, so now we celebrate my birthday. I, I allow them the opportunity to celebrate together as we celebrate uh, Ruby's heavenly birthdays now, because now but it gives them a sense of connection. And, and Ruby's actually had some similarities in my life. She was a preemie baby. I was a preemie baby. Oh, wow. I, barely, I barely survived. She barely survived. And, uh, you know, her mom actually reminds me a lot of my mom, you know. So all those little similarities. And, uh, you know, I always, I always said that it's it's not a, by chance that you help people in their moments of darkness. It, it really does matter who... Who gets the case? It really does matter who investigates it, and and I think we're we're, we're going to be friends for life here. Uh, and I really I, we consider each other family, uh, and many others uh, maybe won't take it as far as I did, but it's really helped me to see that family now, um, where they are now. I know they have their moments. I know they have their good days and bad days, but they're they're they are thriving. They are moving forward. You know, there's other siblings in the home, and to see the siblings you know, move on and and, and with their lives, and uh, it's, it's special. So now when we see them for Christmas, I try to adopt them for Christmas and give them gifts. They do appreciate, and I also bring something for Ruby. It's always going to be some sort of stuff animal so we could put it on Ruby's grave site. They appreciate that. So that that's, you know, that's the human side of police work right, that people don't see, and uh, so I'm glad we're talking about it because... I'm not. I know I'm not the only one that that goes above and beyond. There are so many law enforcement officers, detectives, that do this job, and then we hear this rhetoric of you know, all cops are bastards, our cops are bad, and and defund the police and and all that crap. It really hurts, um, and I, I hope people realize that the same people that they want to defund is the same people that respond to these kind of crimes and and solve them and 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 give these families a sense of. Of hope when they're persevering. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I want to. No, you're absolutely right, Moses. If people don't get to see it. We see cops in very different lights on TV, uh, movies. Uh, I've talked about this before with other officers. We see them in Lethal Weapon, we see them in Dirty Harry. They get this image of a cop. And personally, I get it. It's fun, but they really need to balance it out with the other images of cops. I think Adam 12 did one of the best examples because it really showed the complexity of this profession, which I think
2: mm-hmm.
1: after interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people over the last few years, I have never met a profession as complicated as this one in my life. And I've interviewed special forces, CIAs, I've interviewed serial killers, you name it. Nothing like this, because you guys going from all over the place, from handling a serial mm-hmm. killer to handling a child, child rapist, to saving a, somebody, a baby from, from choking to, I mean, it just goes from one extreme to another. You can be happy in one second, and 10 seconds later, you're on drawing a weapon on somebody. It's just really an amazing complex uh, profession yeah. you have.
2: You know, my, my, youngest, my youngest victim of a homicide, of a murder, is gonna be a matter of being just born. Seconds of being born. That's right. That, that baby was murdered by the mom. Um, and, and then that baby was dumped in the trash. And God blessed our transient population, our homeless population, because this homeless individual was uh, going through the, the trash to collect recyclables. And he saw this box and uh, this box was taped up. He thought that was God because who tapes the trash to throw it out? So he grabs the box and he shakes it and he hears bottles and cans inside of it, and they're rattling. So he decides to open it. To his surprise, he sees this towel and he, he lifts it up, oh. and a body falls out. His oh, wow. denial goes no. He, he was he was uh he had poor eyesight. He was legally blind, but he could see that there was an image, and he was maybe it was a dead cat. But then he he lifts up the body to put it close to his eyes because he's he's blind, and then when he's noticing it, it's a baby, he freaked out. He ran about a mile to get on a payphone, you know, this is in 2005, so payphones were still being used. And uh, uh, the reason why he ran a whole mile was because the airship, the helicopter was hovering around on an unrated burglary search. So he didn't want to get in trouble for this homicide, thinking that, you know, right. he's gonna get blamed for it. But he called 911 and said, hey, there's a baby in the trash, it's dead. And they hung up and then he just told him where it was and there we go. This was by uh, USC campus, so we felt there was going to be a USC connection, and um, that's what it was. Holly Ashcraft was arrested and later convicted of a lesser charge, uh, but we we found uh, that box had uh, envelopes with her name on it, and her name was Holly Ashcraft. But when I was running with it, you know, initially, and I heard somebody mention that it, it belonged to Holly Ashcraft. I heard the word Ashcroft, and I go, oh, no. And they told me that it was addressed to somebody in Washington. So I'm thinking (laughs) in my mind, oh, no, don't be uh, Mr. Ashcroft, you know, our our attorney general uh, at that time. Oh, no, please don't be a relative (laughs) of that. No, 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 it's not Ashcroft. It's it's Ashcraft, and it's Washington State, not Washington, D.C. I go, okay. It was that discussion that another detective overheard the name, uh, uh, Amy Sunquist is her name, and she goes, here. did you guys mention uh, Holly Ashcraft? And she, I go, yes. Oh, I had a case with her last year where she dumped a baby, but on that case, we could never find the baby. That baby was never found because uh, the, the trash, people already picked it up, and then it got disseminated to the trash field, and we could never find that baby. I go, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you, only make, you can't make this shit up. This is like special victims unit uh, on TV. Yeah. Uh, it was like, like, oh, my God. So once we learned that she really was, uh, uh, you know, she had this history, we went uh, to look her up, and sure enough, uh, long story short, but the reason I mentioned that is that that was the youngest homicide victim I've ever had, and we had a tradition at LAPD at that particular unit of the abuse child section that if we had a, we call it baby dumps, whenever we have a baby dump, we never liked giving the baby a number, like baby doe number whatever, baby doe number 77 or whatever. We would give the name, we would, we, the detective assigned to the case would have the honor of naming the baby. So in this case, I named the baby Michael uh, and uh, because the person who found him was Mr. Michael Walker. So I figured I'd give honor to Mr. Walker and I named him Michael. The interesting thing about that um, is when I booked Holly and she and Um, She only gave me a little bit of a statement, but then invoked her right to uh, an attorney. So I really couldn't talk to her anymore. But during the booking process, I asked her if she wanted to know. I said, I named the baby. I I said, Holly, I named your baby. Do you want to know what I named her? You want to guess what her response was? (laughs) She said, no way. Like she had this look at, no way, don't tell me. You know why she didn't want me to tell her her name? Or his name? Because then... yeah, it makes it, it makes it human. It makes the baby uh-huh. human. It's not an object anymore. So, so I'm gonna tell you anyways. His name is Michael. I named him Michael. You should oh have seen gosh. her react. Did she cry? She, really she she really didn't know what to say or do, but she could tell it really bothered her. Did, during
0: when it, when she pled or was that trial? Did they ever was there ever have an explanation for the two? You know why she dumped two kids? It seems so.
2: No, she never did. My 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 um, suspicion is that. When she was younger, she was a victim of uh, abuse, I believe, by her father. And uh, so sex to her was a bad thing, and the result of sex is even worse. So that's, that's my take on it. I actually flew to where she was from. She was from Billings, Montana. Uh, I wanted to learn about her. So I flew out there to, to learn about her. And uh, I, I surmised that I believe there was even a, a, a third body dump in, in Billings, Montana, but I could never prove it. Um, but that one, I believe, she actually had a, she may have had a legal abortion for that one, uh, in 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 Montana. But in any event, um, yeah, that it's sad that you know we see the you know the worst of the worst. Like I said, the youngest homicide victim. It was just a matter of seconds of being born. And uh, this doctor named Jeffrey Bean, He wrote a book called "Why Mothers Kill." And I called him to to interview him, and uh, it was fascinating. He actually interviewed Susan Smith, you know, the one that killed her five kids in the uh, in the lake out there. Yeah. And uh, so it's a fascinating, I didn't even know there was this phenomenon of, of neonicide where children are being killed on their day they're born. So on their birthday there, it's also their date of death. It's it's really sad.
1: That's a t- terrible thing. And yeah. I think some of them have to do with postpartum depression. That's um, usually that's kind of one of the things that happens. I, you know what, uh, let me ask you this. Um, Actually, you know what? I'm not going to ask. I think uh,
0: James has a couple of questions he wanted to ask. James, go for it. Yeah, the first question I would ask you for a smaller department um, that doesn't have the experience, as say you guys do, uh, forensic interviews. At what age would you say you know it's appropriate, and at what you know kind of a range for children of a sex crime?
2: Yeah, you know what? That's a it's a very good question, and it's very tricky. The younger the child is, so I, I know for for our policy, we probably wouldn't do a forensic interview on a child that was three pushing it age four but you know it's really going to be really tough and but I would recommend forensic interviews on children no matter what because that's those are interviews that are conducted in best practices for interviewing children without uh, asking any leading questions or suggestive questions and you really allow the child to to tell their story if there is a story to be told to be told and and so that's that's I would recommend that the detectives uh, use forensic interview specialists more than they really do because uh, interviewing a child is very challenging. And sometimes it's more intimidating to the detectives than talking to an adult. Uh, But the more you do the forensic interviews and you watch them, because those interviews are going to be recorded by video and audio. And then the more you do those, then you may be able to do your own interviews in the same format because sure. again we ask the children about you know it's okay to if we ask you a question you don't know it's okay to say you don't know if we ask you a question that you don't understand make sure you let us know you don't understand and then we we talk to their level like for instance we'll say uh emily what's your gender and sometimes I'll say well i don't know then we'll say yeah. okay well are you a boy or a girl and then they'll say oh i'm a girl so we we try to get them to understand the questions and if they don't understand we, we give them uh, an opportunity to illustrate a question that they don't understand so that sure. the person looking at this interview could know that it was really done in a very neutral setting without leading or asking suggested questions.
0: Sure. Uh, and, and also, I, I know for like core purposes, too, is if you have a third party, too, it also, you know, it kind of takes away the police out of it, you know. Right. Someone who's more trained in that area. I know Arizona does a lot of that, the larger departments.
2: Yeah, no, that, that's the best thing to do. And uh, But if you are going to do it, please record it oh, sure. in, uh, audio and video because uh, it, it's, not, it's not going to do you any good if you don't record it.
1: I just wanted to add something to that, James, if I could, because I know you have another sure. question for me in a second. But when, when the child – if there's a victim, they're, they're alive, obviously, in your court system in L.A., do they allow them to see – the perpetrator, if they have to, if the child has to go to court, the five or six year old, or they do it to CCTV or do, they do it through video, or what do they do? Yeah.
2: Was, well, right now, because of the COVID, uh, there hasn't been any trials, but when there was trials, the child would have to come in court and. Oh, really? Yeah. And they have to be what we call court qualified, be able to raise their right hand and promise to tell the truth. And then the prosecutor would do a very good job of allowing the court and the jury to see, hey, that this person does understand. Uh, the truth from a lie it's different from the right from wrong you know um so I was looking more at the
1: re-traumatization aspect because sometimes they talk about the victim seeing the, the perpetrator again can traumatize yeah. them
2: especially but at a yeah, young we, age like we, that yeah. what we tell them is that they could just look at us uh or look at the prosecutor is one way but yeah unfortunately the defendants have a right to to be present and be either to cross-examine um yeah
1: Scary stuff. James, you, I'm sorry,
0: you had the other questions? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That, that was a good question. I like that. Um, the question I had is, if you were going to give parents tips, you know, what to look out for, is there anything you could say to, you know, help?
2: Yeah. Well, on a very basic level, this is what I'll tell you, is that I always told uh, even friends and, and whenever I speak to community groups, if there's someone out there, such as a teacher or a coach or another adult that actually wants to spend more time with your child than you do, that's a red flag. Sure. So if, if Johnny's coach comes to you, Hey, can I, can I uh, take Johnny to the movie theaters and maybe buy him some ice cream and take him shopping or take him to Disneyland <laughs> or take him to magic mom? <laughs> oh man, I, I could tell you story after story, yeah. but these guys are good. Cause you know, the, their object, is, their, their, their goal is to gain the trust, not only of the child, but of the child support system. So if the child comes from a broken home to begin with, that person's going to say, yeah, uh, Go because I can't I can't give Johnny what you can give him so yeah go take him yeah go and buy him all these stuff because and what he's doing he's trusting he's gaining trust and then once he has the child alone all, all you know bets are off but I, I taught my children I have three boys uh, 23 21 and 15 I taught them all how these guys operate so I always told them look if anybody gives you any gifts any money any any, any electronics devices where you meet somebody online or gaming or whatever, and they want to give you something, go ahead, receive it, take it. But just let me know. Because I, I don't want them to say, I don't want them to tell, then, then, if they, then once you tell me, I want to make sure that it was good. And then from there, I want to you know, let them know. And I said, the reason why they do that, son, is because eventually they want to get you alone. They want to get you, and then they're going to do this little thing about private touches and, and bad touches or good touches. I taught them all that. Because once they learn how these people operate, and you know what, it came in handy. When my son was in first grade, and one thing we haven't touch, touched on, but I, I've seen an increase on child on child sex incidents. It's on the rise. And I think it's a lot to do with, with the internet and what they see on TV, but it sometimes can be learned behavior because they've been victims of abuse. So my son is in first grade, and remember I, I taught him about good touches, bad touches. He's in first grade, he's in the bathroom using the urinal, Another first grader pulls down his pants and then humps him. My oh. son puts, up, puts his head, pants back up and he runs and he tells the teacher exactly what I you know, told him to yeah. do. And then the teacher, you know, they know me. They know that this is my area of expertise. And you know, they're being very careful. And, and they <laughs> tell me what happened. Of course, I'm not going to blame this poor first grader. Sure, sure. yeah. But I did tell him, hey, but please call the authorities. Even, mm. if, if it's, even if it's just child particular services. You don't have to call the cops. But call somebody to make sure that this kid is not being abused at home.
0: Yeah, Well, um, that's just not a normal child's behavior, you know? So, right. yeah, yeah, correct. So,
2: awesome. so that's why it's important. So that's a very good question. So please uh, learn. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they have a lot of great resources on there for, for parents to how to communicate with their kids about the dangers of the internet, the dangers of these predators, how they operate. So that's what I would do is get, get educated on how these guys operate so that you could best protect your children. One of the things I've always taught my victims, especially uh, the victims uh, of in-home abuse, such as a stepfather or, or a living boyfriend, I tell those victims that, hey, when you grow up, you're going to be the best mom ever because you, you're going to know what it was like to not have that support from a mom or whatever. So you're going to be very great. And so far, I've been very fortunate to hear these re- these stories from some of my victims that they have been. They've been the best parents to their children and, and you know and then unfortunately because of what happened to them but nonetheless we could break that cycle it doesn't have to repeat itself
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that gave me a great idea would be trying to get these schools get your schools if you're on pta board to bring that association um uh, yes yeah. children exploiting
2: situations go to your school even if it's zoom to give a conference yeah they do they do free trainings for the schools absolutely and they yeah. even give uh, special ids for the kids
0: I always, I always told the story when my son was in first grade, I went to his class and I'm going to get quick. I tried to, you know, ask everybody, Hey, would anybody for jump in my truck? And no, no, no. So what I did is I brought a hundred dollar bill with me and I took it out. And I go, Whoa, hundred. And I mean, one kid's eyes lit up and I said, Hey, we go find my puppy and I'll give you this. He jumped up and started to walk with me. And I said, see right there. No, <laughs> you know, I always remembered that.
2: <laughs> yeah. The old puppy trick. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh as I said that that worked a lot I mean, that's no, I the I
0: Detective
1: Moses, I know I was I was watching this guy a couple of years ago and he did the same thing grooming the children, but he actually said that he would groom the parents a lot of times as well. Is that something for the parents to be careful when you see a stranger at a park and they they, they know your routine because they see your mom you're coming with your four- year- old every two three days? Hey, Ann, How are you? It's good to see you again. And then they try to ingratiate themselves. Is that something also they'd be wary
2: of? Well, absolutely. And that's why I said that not only are they trying to gain the trust of the child, but also of the the support system or the parent. Because oftentimes these these predators they know that if a child comes from a broken home, that there's no dad in the picture, no mom. They're being raised by an uncle. A quick story. Uh, this guy this 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 guy was a single parent, uh, divorced, and so the teacher. Uh, took a liking to this kid and really showered him with gifts, took him to Magic Mountain took him to all these places and and, and, and this guy was making, he was only in fourth grade, fourth grade and uh, he was he was performing oral, the, the teacher was performing oral cop on the kid in the classroom in, during lunch break and went on for oh. months and the reason it came out to light is because the dad tells the son, hey son, I'm going to ask Mr. Stoby to be your godfather, what do you think? The guy goes, "No, Dad, please, no!" And they came out because he goes, "Oh my gosh, if you make him my stepfather, man, he's gonna have free reign on me." So that's how he came out. And then he finally told him because he's been doing all this. That
0: poor. Kid. Um,
2: and and we got sure. him convicted. He's in prison. Uh, so yeah, and so these parents got to be careful. And and just because they're a teacher or a coach, it, it's hard to say. You know. Um,
1: well, they look for those professions too.
2: Yeah. Yeah, professionals. Because one of the things we've learned, uh, and I'm sure Dr. Carlos can uh, attest to it, that these uh, child molesters, uh, they've learned that they had a sexual preference for children at a very young age, as early as age 14, they discover that sexual preference for children, and then they act upon it maybe shortly thereafter. But uh, that's so if they think about it, if they learn that early on, they're going to be committing crimes for like ever because once they once cross the line. It's a point of no return, you can't undo that. And it's, it's a, you know, trying that uh, forbidden fruit. And once you bite into that fruit, uh, you keep doing it.
1: That's an incredible problem. it's so sad because I mean, you wish you could live in this, I don't wanna age myself here, but you wish you could live in this Andy Griffith type of world. Where you could have your teacher taking you to a, a, an amusement park and just be innocent and, and nice and you have somebody you can trust and a mentor but in today's world boy i tell you we're far away from Andy griffith oh for sure james any more further questions for him
0: no no this has <laughs> been very informative you know i'm sad you know to hear the stories um but i have to say um i i appreciate your service um that is probably in my opinion as a retired police officer um Child crimes has to be the absolute worst crimes to have to investigate. So I, I tip my hat to you, sir.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Absolutely. And sorry about that, James. I kind of made it, like, made it like you were an interrogator.
2: Any further questions,
0: James? Oh, no, no, no. I knew it, No, no, I knew what you Jim. No, we've been doing this enough. I knew what you
1: <laughs> <laughs> Detective Castillo, thank you so much. By the way, folks, uh, Detective Castillo does have a show on KABC. You want to check it out, the Blue Line podcast with Detective Moses Castillo. It's a great podcast. You definitely want to check it out. It's at 790 KABC. Hey, you know what? Follow him on Twitter, Detective Moses at Detective Moses, that's his
2: handle. Um, anywhere else you wanted to send the crap? So I'm also on Instagram uh, at Detective Moses Castillo. Oh,
1: okay.
2: On, on Instagram. But yeah, my, if you go to kbc.com uh, and then click on the podcast tab, you're going to find my picture right underneath Leo Terrell. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> Leo Terrell, all
1: right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Detective, for being here. We truly appreciate it. Absolutely, I agree. Hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Let's do it again. Thank you. You got it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Make sure you want to support our podcast to share and subscribe. James, another fascinating discussion.
0: I agree. I agree.
1: A little heart-wrenching, that's for sure. Yeah, but good tips for parents, though. You know, very good tips. Absolutely. Again, folks, go to jamescaseyauthor.com. His book is out. What are you waiting for? Check it out. There it is. Hey,
0: you brought it with, all right, the yes, traffic stop. <laughs> That's what I ducked out for.
1: <laughs> there it is, the traffic stop. make sure you go to jamescaseyauthor.com. Thanks, everyone.
2: Thanks. See ya. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.